0: CHAPTER TEN. How the interval of suspense in which I was now condemned might have affected other men in my position, I cannot pretend to say. The influence of the two hours probation upon my temperament was simply this. I felt physically incapable of remaining still in any one place, and morally incapable of speaking to any one human being, until I had first heard all that Ezra Jennings had to say to me. In this frame of mind— I not only abandoned my contemplated visit to Mrs. Abelwhite, I even shrank from encountering Gabriel Betteridge himself. Returning to Frizzing Hall, I left a note for Betteridge, telling him that I had been unexpectedly called away for a few hours, but that he might certainly expect me to return towards three o'clock in the afternoon. I requested him, in the interval, to order his dinner at the usual hour and to amuse himself as he pleased. He had, as I well knew, hosts of friends in Frizzing Hall, and he would be at no loss how to fill up his time until I returned to the hotel. This done, I made the best of my way out of the town again and roamed the lonely moorland country which surrounds Frizzing Hall until my watch told me that it was time, at last, to return to Mr. Candy's house. I found Ezra Jennings ready and waiting for me, He was sitting alone in a bare little room, which communicated by a glazed door with a surgery. Hideous colored diagrams of the ravages of hideous diseases decorated the barren, buff-colored walls. A bookcase filled with dingy medical works, and ornamented at the top with a skull, in place of the customary bust, a large deal table copiously splashed with ink, wooden chairs of the sort that are seen in kitchens and cottages, a threadbare drugget in the middle of the floor, a sink of water with a basin and waste pipe roughly let into the wall, horribly suggestive of its connection with surgical operations, comprised the entire furniture of the room. The bees were humming among a few flowers placed in pots outside the window, the birds were singing in the garden, and the faint intermittent jingle of a tuneless piano in some neighboring house forced itself now and again on the ear. In any other place, these everyday sounds might have spoken pleasantly of the everyday world outside. Here, they came in as intruders on a silence which nothing but human suffering had the privilege to disturb. I looked at the mahogany instrument case and at the huge roll of lint occupying places of their own on the bookshelves and shuddered inwardly as I thought of the sounds familiar and appropriate to the everyday use of Ezra Jennings' room. I make no apology, Mr. Blake, for the place in which I am receiving you, he said. It is the only room in the house at this hour of the day in which we can feel quite sure of being left undisturbed. Here are my papers, ready for you, and here are two books to which we may have occasion to refer before we have done. Bring your chair to the table, and we shall be able to consult them together. I drew up to the table, and Esther Jennings handed me his manuscript notes. They consisted of two large folio leaves of paper. One leaf contained writing which only covered the surface at intervals. The other presented writing in red and black ink, "'which completely filled the page from top to bottom. "'In the irritated state of my curiosity at that moment, "'I laid aside the second sheet of paper in despair. "'Have some mercy on me,' I said. "'Tell me what I am to expect before I attempt to read this. "'Willingly, Mr. Blake, "'do you mind my asking you one or two more questions? "'Ask me anything you like.' He looked at me with the sad smile on his lips and the kindly interest in his soft brown eyes. "'You have already told me,' he said, "'that you have never, to your knowledge, "'tasted opium in your life. "'To my knowledge,' I repeated. "'You will understand directly "'why I speak with that reservation. "'Let us go on. "'You are not aware of ever having taken opium. "'At this time last year "'you were suffering from nervous irritation,' and you slept wretchedly at night. On the night of the birthday, however, there was an exception to the rule. You slept soundly. Am I right so far? Quite right. Can you assign any cause for the nervous suffering and your want of sleep? I can assign no cause. Old Betteridge made a guess at the cause, I remember, but that is hardly worth mentioning. Pardon me. Anything is worth mentioning in such a case as this.' "'Betteridge attributed your sleeplessness to something. "'To what? "'To my leaving off smoking. "'Had you been a habitual smoker? "'Yes. "'Did you leave off the habit suddenly? "'Yes. "'Betteridge was perfectly right, Mr. Blake. "'When smoking is a habit, "'a man must have no common constitution "'who can leave it off suddenly "'without some temporary damage to his nervous system. "'Your sleepless nights are accounted for, to my mind.' My next question refers to Mr. Candy. Do you remember having entered into anything like a dispute with him at the birthday dinner, or afterwards, on the subject of his profession? The question instantly awakened one of my dormant remembrances in connection with the birthday festival. The foolish wrangle which took place on that occasion between Mr. Candy and myself will be found described at much greater length than it deserves in the tenth chapter of Betteridge's narrative. The details there, presented of the dispute, so little, had I thought of it afterwards, entirely failed to recur to my memory. All that I could now recall, and all that I could tell Ezra Jennings, was that I had attacked the art of medicine at the dinner-table with sufficient rashness to put even Mr. Candy out of temper for the moment— I also remembered that Lady Verinder had interfered to stop the dispute and that the little doctor and I made it up again, as the children say, and had become as good friends as ever before we shook hands that night. "'There is one thing more,' said Ezra Jennings, "'which it is very important I should know. "'Had you any reason for feeling any special anxiety about the diamond "'at this time last year?' "'I had the strongest reasons for feeling anxiety about the diamond.' I knew it to be the object of a conspiracy, and I was warned to take measures for Miss Verinder's protection as the possessor of the stone. Was the safety of the diamond the subject of conversation between you and any other person immediately before you retired to rest on the birthday night? It was the subject of a conversation between Lady Verinder and her daughter. Which took place in your hearing? Yes. "'Esra Jennings took up his notes from the table "'and placed them in my hands. "'Mr. Blake,' he said, "'if you read those notes now, "'by the light of which my questions "'and your answers have thrown on them, "'you will make two astounding discoveries "'concerning yourself. "'You will find, first, "'that you entered Miss Verinder's sitting-room "'and took the diamond, "'in a state of trance, "'produced by opium. "'Secondly, that the opium was given to you by Mr. Candy without your own knowledge as a practical refutation of the opinions which you had expressed to him at the birthday dinner. I sat with the papers in my hand, completely stupefied. Try and forgive poor Mr. Candy, said the assistant gently. He has done dreadful mischief, I own, but he has done it innocently. If you will look at the notes, you will see that But for his illness, he would have returned to Lady Verinder's the morning after the party, and would have acknowledged the trick that he had played you. Miss Verinder would have heard of it, and Miss Verinder would have questioned him, and the truth, which is laid hidden for a year, would have been discovered in a day. I began to regain my self-possession. "'Mr. Candy is beyond the reach of my resentment,' I said angrily, "'But the trick, he played me, is not the less an act of treachery for all that. "'I may forgive, but I shall not forget it. "'Every medical man commits that act of treachery, Mr. Blake, in the course of his practice. "'The ignorant distrust of opium, in England, is by no means confined to the lower and less cultivated classes.' Every doctor in large practice finds himself every now and then obliged to deceive his patients as Mr. Candy deceived you. I don't defend the folly of playing you a trick under the circumstances. I only plead with you for a more accurate and more merciful construction of motives. How was it done? I asked. Who gave me laudanum without my knowing it myself? I am not able to tell you, "'Nothing relating to that part of the matter "'dropped from Mr. Candy's lips, all through his illness. "'Perhaps your own memory may point to the person to be suspected. "'No. "'It is useless, in that case, to pursue the inquiry. "'The laudanum was secretly given to you in some way. "'Let us leave it there, "'and go on to matters of more immediate importance. "'Read my notes, if you can. "'Familiarize your mind with what has happened in the past.' I have something very bold and very startling to propose to you which relates to the future. Those last words roused me. I looked at the papers in the order in which Ezra Jennings had placed them in my hands. The paper, which contained the smaller quantity of writing, was the uppermost of the two. On this, the disconnected words and fragments of sentences which had dropped from Mr. Candy in his delirium, appeared as follows. Mr. Franklin Blake, and agreeable down a peg, medicine, confesses, sleep at night, tell him, out of order, medicine, he tells me, and groping in the dark, mean one, and the same thing, all the company at the dinner table, I say, groping after sleep, nothing but medicine, he says, leading the blind, know what it means, witty, a night's rest, in spite of his teeth, want sleep, Lady Verinder's medicine chest. Five and twenty minimums. Without his knowing it. Tomorrow morning. Well, Mr. Blake. Medicine today. Never. Without it. Out, Mr. Candy. Excellent. Without it. Down on him. Truth. Something besides. Excellent. Dose of laudanum, sir. Bed. What? Medicine now. There. The first of the two sheets of paper came to an end. I handed it back to Ezra Jennings. "'That is what you heard at his bedside?' I said. "'Literally and exactly what I heard,' he answered, "'except that the repetitions are not transferred here "'from my shorthand notes.' "'He reiterated certain words and phrases "'a dozen times over, fifty times over, "'just as he attached more or less importance "'to the idea which they represented. "'The repetitions, in this sense,' were of some assistance to me in putting together those fragments. "'Don't suppose,' he added, pointing to the second sheet of paper, "'that I claim to have reproduced the expressions "'which Mr. Candy himself would have used "'if he had been capable of speaking connectedly. "'I only say that I have penetrated through the obstacle "'of the disconnected expression "'to the thought which was underlying it connectedly all the time. "'Judge for yourself.' I turned to the second sheet of paper, which I now knew to be the key to the first. Once more, Mr. Candy's wanderings appeared copied in black ink, the intervals between the phrases being filled up by Ezra Jennings in red ink. I reproduced the result here in one plain form, the original language and the interpretation of it coming close enough together in these pages to be easily compared and verified. Mr. Franklin Blake is clever and agreeable, but he wants taking down a peg when he talks of medicine. He confesses that he has been suffering from want of sleep at night. I tell him that his nerves are out of order and that he ought to take medicine. He tells me that taking medicine and groping in the dark mean one and the same thing. This before all the company at the dinner table. I say to him, You are groping after sleep, and nothing but medicine can help you to find it. He says to me, "'I have heard of the blind leading the blind, "'and now I know what it means. "'Witty! "'But I can give him a night's rest in spite of his teeth. "'He really wants sleep, "'and Lady Verinder's medicine chest is at my disposal. "'Give him five-and-twenty minimums of laudanum tonight, "'without his knowing it, "'and then call to-morrow morning. "'Well, Mr. Blake, will you try a little medicine to-day? "'You will never sleep without it. "'There, you are out, Mr. Candy,' I have had an excellent night's rest without it. Then come down on him with the truth. You have had something besides an excellent night's rest. You had a dose of laudanum, sir, before you went to bed. What do you say to the art of medicine now?' Admiration of the ingenuity which had woven this smooth and finished texture out of the raveled skein was naturally the first impression that I felt on handing the manuscript back to Ezra Jennings.' He modestly interrupted the first few words in which my sense of surprise expressed itself by asking me if the conclusion which had drawn from his notes was also the conclusion at which my own mind had arrived. "'Do you believe as I believe,' he said, "'that you are acting under the influence of the laudanum "'in doing all that you did on the night of Miss Verinder's birthday in Lady Verinder's house?' "'I am too ignorant of the influence of laudanum "'to have an opinion of my own,' I answered. "'I can only follow your opinion "'and feel convinced that you are right. "'Very well. "'The next question is this. "'You are convinced, and I am convinced. "'How are we to carry our conviction "'to the minds of other people?' "'I pointed to the two manuscripts "'lying on the table between us. "'Ezra Jennings shook his head.' Useless, Mr. Blake, quite useless, as they stand now for three unanswerable reasons. In the first place, those notes have been taken under circumstances entirely out of the experience of the mass of mankind, against them, to begin with. In the second place, those notes represent a medical and metaphysical theory, against them once more. In the third place, those notes are of my making— There is nothing but my assertion to the contrary to guarantee that they are not fabrications. Remember what I told you on the moor, and ask yourself what my assertion is worth. No, my notes have but one value, looking to the verdict of the world outside. Your innocence is to be vindicated, and they show how it can be done. We must put our conviction to the proof, and you are the man to prove it. How? I asked. He leaned eagerly nearer to me across the table that divided us. "'Are you willing to try a bold experiment? "'I will do anything to clear myself of the suspicion that rests on me now. "'Will you submit to some personal inconvenience for a time? "'To any inconvenience, no matter what it may be. "'Will you be guided implicitly by my advice? "'It may expose you to the ridicule of fools,' It may subject you to the remonstrances of friends whose opinions you are bound to respect. Tell me what to do, I broke out impatiently, and come what may, I'll do it. You shall do this, Mr. Blake, he answered. You shall steal the diamond unconsciously, for the second time, in the presence of witnesses whose testimony is beyond dispute. I started to my feet. I tried to speak. I could only look at him. I believe... "'It can be done,' he went on, "'and it shall be done, if you will only help me. "'Try to compose yourself, sit down, "'and hear what I have to say to you. "'You have resumed the habit of smoking. "'I have seen that for myself. "'How long have you resumed it?' "'For nearly a year. "'Do you smoke more or less than you did?' "'More. "'Will you give up the habit again, suddenly, mind, "'as you gave it up before?' "'I began dimly to see his drift.' "'I will give it up from this moment,' I answered. "'If the same consequences follow, which followed last June,' said Ezra Jennings, "'if you suffer once more, as you suffered then, from sleepless nights, "'we shall have gained our first step. "'We shall have put you back again into something assimilating "'to your nervous condition on the birthday night. "'If we can next revive, or nearly revive, "'the domestic circumstances which surrounded you,' and if we can occupy your mind again with the various questions concerning the diamond which formerly agitated it, we shall have replaced you, as nearly as possible, in the same position, physically and morally, in which the opium found you last year. In that case, we may fairly hope that a repetition of the dose will lead, in a greater or lesser degree, to a repetition of the result. There is my proposal, expressed in a few hasty words, "'You shall now see what reasons I have to justify me in making it.' "'He turned to one of the books at his side "'and opened it at a place marked by a small slip of paper. "'Don't suppose that I'm going to weary you with a lecture on physiology,' he said. "'I think myself bound to prove, in justice to both of us, "'that I am not asking you to try this experiment in deference to any theory of my own devising.' Admitted principles and recognized authorities justify me in the view that I take. Give me five minutes of your attention, and I will undertake to show you that science sanctions my proposal, fanciful as it may seem. Here, in the first place, is the physiological principle on which I am acting, stated by no less a person than Dr. Carpenter. Read it for yourself.' He handed me the slip of paper which had marked the place in the book. It contained a few lines of writing, as follows. There seems much ground for the belief that every sensory impression which has once been recognized by the perceptive consciousness is registered, so to speak, in the brain, and may be reproduced at some subsequent time, although there may be no consciousness of its existence in the mind during the whole intermediate period, "'Is that plain so far?' asked Ezra Jennings. "'Perfectly plain.' "'He pushed the open book across the table to me "'and pointed to a passage marked by pencil lines. "'Now,' he said, "'read that account of a case which has, as I believe, "'a direct bearing on your own position "'and on the experiment which I am tempting you to try. "'Observe, Mr. Blake, before you begin, "'that I am now referring you "'to one of the greatest of English physiologists.' "'The book in your hand is Dr. Eliotston's Human Physiology, "'and the case which the doctor cites "'rests on the well-known authority of Mr. Coombe. "'The passage, pointed out to me, was expressed in these terms. "'Dr. Abel informed me,' says Mr. Coombe, "'of an Irish porter to a warehouse who forgot, when sober, "'what he had done when drunk, but, being drunk, again recollected the transactions of his former state of intoxication. On one occasion, being drunk, he had lost a parcel of some value and in his sober moments could give no account of it. Next time he was intoxicated, he recollected that he had left the parcel at a certain house and there being no address on it, it had remained there safely and was got on his calling for it. "'Plain again?' asked Ezra Jennings. "'As plain as need be.' "'He put back the slip of paper in its place and closed the book. "'Are you satisfied that I have not spoken without good authority to support me?' he asked. "'If not, I have only to go to those bookshelves, "'and you have only to read the passages which I can point out to you. "'I am quite satisfied,' I said, without reading a word more. "'In that case, we may return to your own personal interest in this matter.' I am bound to tell you that there is something to be said against the experiment, as well as for it. If we could, this year, exactly reproduce, in your case, the conditions as they existed last year, it is physiologically certain that we should arrive at exactly the same result. But this, there is no denying it, is simply impossible. We can only hope to approximate to the conditions and if we don't succeed in getting you nearly enough back to what you were, this venture of ours will fail. If we do succeed, and I am myself hopeful of success, you may at least so far repeat your proceedings on the birthday night as to satisfy any reasonable person that you were guiltless, morally speaking, of the theft of the diamond. I believe, Mr. Blake, I have now stated the question on both sides of it as fairly as I can— "'within the limits that I have imposed on myself. "'If there is anything that I have not made clear to you, "'tell me what it is, and if I can enlighten you, I will. "'All that you have explained to me,' I said, "'I understand perfectly. "'But I own I am puzzled on one point "'which you have not made clear to me yet. "'What is the point? "'I don't understand the effect of the laudanum on me.' I don't understand my walking downstairs, and along corridors, and my opening and shutting the drawers of a cabinet, and my going back again to my own room. All these are active proceedings. I thought the influence of opium was first to stupefy you, and then to send you to sleep. The common error about opium, Mr. Blake. I am, at this moment, exerting my intelligence, such as it is in your service, under the influence of a dose of laudanum some ten times larger than the dose Mr. Candy administered to you. But don't trust my authority, even on a question which comes within my own personal experience. I anticipated the objection you have just made, and I have again provided myself with independent testimony, which will carry its due weight with it in your own mind and in the minds of your friends.' he handed me the second of the two books which he had by him on the table. There, he said, are the far-famed confessions of an English opium-eater. Take the book away with you and read it. At the passage, which I have marked, you will find that when De Quincey had committed what he calls a debauch of opium, he either went to the gallery at the opera to enjoy the music, or he wandered about the London markets on Saturday night and interested himself in observing "'all the little shifts and bargainings of the poor "'in providing their Sunday's dinner. "'So much for the capacity of a man to occupy himself actively "'and to move about from place to place under the influence of opium. "'I am answered so far,' I said, "'but I am not answered yet as to the effect produced by the opium on myself. "'I will try to answer you in a few words,' said Ezra Jennings.' The action of opium is comprised, in the majority of cases, in two influences, a stimulating influence first and a sedative influence afterwards. Under the stimulating influence, the latest and most vivid impressions left on your mind, namely, the impressions relating to the diamond, would be likely, in your morbidly sensitive nervous condition, to become intensified in your brain— and would subordinate to themselves your judgment or your will, exactly as an ordinary dream subordinates to itself your judgment and your will. Little by little, under this action, any apprehensions about the safety of the diamond which you might have felt during the day would be liable to develop themselves from the state of doubt to the state of certainty, would impel you into practical action to preserve the jewel direct your steps with the motive in view "'into the room which you entered "'and would guide your hand to the drawers of the cabinet "'until you had found the drawer which held the stone. "'In the spiritualized intoxication of opium, "'you would do all that. "'Later, as the sedative action "'began to gain on the stimulant action, "'you would slowly become inert and stupefied. "'Later still, you would fall into a deep sleep.' When the morning came, and the effect of the opium had been all slept off, you would wake as absolutely ignorant of what you had done in the night. "'Have I made it tolerably clear to you so far?' "'You have made it so clear,' I said, "'that I want you to go farther. You have shown me how I entered the room, and how I came to take the diamond. But Miss Verinder saw me leave the room again, with the jewel in my hand. Can you trace my proceedings from that moment? Can you guess what I did next?' "'That is the very point I was coming to,' he rejoined. "'It is a question with me whether the experiment, "'which I propose as a means of vindicating your innocence, "'may not also be made a means of recovering the lost diamond as well. "'When you left Miss Verinder's sitting-room with the jewel in your hand, "'you went back in all probability to your own room. "'Yes, and what then? "'It is possible, Mr. Blake, I dare not say more,' that your idea of preserving the diamond led, by a natural sequence, to the idea of hiding the diamond, and that the place in which you hid it was somewhere in your bedroom. In that event, the case of the Irish porter may be your case. You may remember, under the influence of the second dose of opium, the place in which you hid the diamond, under the influence of the first. It was my turn now to enlighten Ezra Jennings. I stopped him before he could say any more. "'You are speculating,' I said, "'on a result which cannot possibly take place. "'The diamond is, at this moment, in London.' "'He started, and looked at me in great surprise. "'In London,' he repeated, "'how did it get to London from Lady Verinder's house? "'Nobody knows. "'You removed it with your own hand from Miss Verinder's room. "'How was it taken out of your keeping? "'I have no idea how it was taken out of my keeping. "'Did you see it when you woke in the morning? "'No.' "'Has Miss Verinder recovered possession of it? No. "'Mr. Blake, there seems to be something here which wants clearing up. "'May I ask you how you know that the diamond is, at this moment, in London?' "'I had put precisely the same question to Mr. Bruff "'when I made my first inquiries about the moonstone on my return to England. "'In answering Ezra Jennings, I accordingly repeated "'what I had myself heard from the lawyer's own lips,' "'and what is already familiar to the readers of these pages. "'He showed plainly that he was not satisfied with my reply. "'With all deference to you,' he said, "'and with all deference to your legal adviser, "'I maintain the opinion which I expressed just now. "'It rests, I am well aware, on a mere assumption. "'Pardon me for reminding you "'that your opinion also rests on a mere assumption as well. "'The view he took of the matter was entirely new to me, I waited anxiously to hear how he would defend it. "'I assume,' pursued Ezra Jennings, "'that the influence of the opium, "'after impelling you to possess yourself of the diamond "'with the purpose of securing its safety, "'might also impel you, acting under the same influence "'and the same motive, to hide it somewhere in your own room. "'You assume that the Hindu conspirators "'could by no possibility commit a mistake.' "'The Indians went to Mr. Luker's house after the diamond, "'and therefore in Mr. Luker's possession the diamond must be. "'Have you any evidence to prove that the moonstone was taken to London at all? "'You can't even guess how or by whom it was removed from Lady Verinder's house. "'Have you any evidence that the jewel was pledged to Mr. Luker? "'He declares that he never heard of the moonstone.' and his banker's receipt acknowledges nothing but the deposit of a valuable of great price. The Indians assume that Mr. Luker is lying, and you assume again that the Indians are right. All I say, in differing with you, is that my view is possible. What more, Mr. Blake, either logically or legally, can be said for yours? It was put strongly, but there is no denying that it was put truly as well. I confess you stagger me. I replied. Do you object to my writing to Mr. Bruff and telling him what you have said? On the contrary, I shall be glad if you will write to Mr. Bruff. If we consult his experience, we may see the matter under a new light. For the present, let us return to our experiment with the opium. We have decided that you will leave off the habit of smoking from this moment. From this moment? That is the first step. The next step is to reproduce as nearly as we can the domestic circumstances which surrounded you last year. How is this to be done? Lady Verinder was dead. Rachel and I, so long as a suspicion of theft rested on me, were parted irrevocably. Godfrey Ablewhite was away traveling on the continent. It was simply impossible to reassemble the people who had inhabited the house when I had slept in it last. The statement of this objection did not appear to embarrass Ezra Jennings. He attached very little importance, he said, to reassembling the same people, seeing that it would be vain to expect them to reassume the various positions which they had occupied towards me in the past times. On the other hand, he considered it essential to the success of the experiment that I should see the same objects about me which had surrounded me when I was last in the house. Above all things, he said, You must sleep in the room which you slept in on the birthday night, and it must be furnished in the same way. The stairs, the quarters, and Miss Verinder's sitting-room must also be restored to what they were when you saw them last. It is absolutely necessary, Mr. Blake, to replace every article of furniture in that part of the house which may now be put away. The sacrifice of your cigars will be useless unless we can get Miss Verinder's permission to do that. "'Who is to apply to her for permission?' I asked. "'Is it not possible for you to apply?' "'Quite out of the question. "'After what has passed between us on the subject of the lost diamond, "'I can neither see her nor write to her as things are now.' "'Esra Jennings paused and considered for a moment. "'May I ask you a delicate question?' he said. "'I signed to him to go on. "'Am I right, Mr. Blake, in fancying from one or two things "'which have dropped from you— "'that you felt no common interest in Miss Verinder in former times?' "'Quite right. "'Was the feeling returned?' "'It was. "'Do you think Miss Verinder would be likely to feel a strong interest "'in the attempt to prove your innocence?' "'I am certain of it. "'In that case, I will write to Miss Verinder if you will give me leave. "'Telling her of the proposal that you have made to me? "'Telling her of everything that has passed between us today?' "'It is needless to say that I eagerly accepted the service "'which he had offered to me. "'I shall have time to write by today's post,' he said, "'looking at his watch. "'Don't forget to lock up your cigars when you get back to the hotel. "'I will call tomorrow morning and hear how you have passed the night.' "'I rose to take leave of him "'and attempted to express the grateful sense of his kindness "'which I really felt. "'He pressed my hand gently. "'Remember what I told you on the moor,' he answered.' If I can do you this little service, Mr. Blake, I shall feel it like a last gleam of sunshine falling on the evening of a long and clouded day. We parted. It was then the 15th of June. The events of the next ten days, every one of them more or less directly connected with the experiment of which I was the passive object, are all placed on record, exactly as they happened, in the journal habitually kept by Mr. Candy's assistant, In the pages of Ezra Jennings' Nothing is Concealed and Nothing is Forgotten, let Ezra Jennings tell how the venture with the opium was tried and how it ended. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. we got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work WUNC.